0: Hey, good morning, uh, let's, turn, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 11 through 14, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. Continuing in Paul's exhortation to the church of what it looks like to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. Paul says this. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made clear, for what makes everything clear is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, the psalmist once said, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Lord, we would love for that to be our prayer this morning. There's nothing on earth we desire except for you. And Lord, we right now pray that in the areas, in the blind spots, in the dark spaces, in the obstructions, in the obstacles that keep us from seeing you. As the best thing that has ever happened to us on this earth, we pray that you would gladly, joyfully remove those things by the sanctifying power of your holy word. As we open up the scriptures and as we read, we pray that it would pour like a refreshing supernatural stream of water into our souls, not only as individuals, but as our relationships are being formed, as our families are being formed as our church is growing, that you would pour like a river of living water from your word, which is alive and true. Sanctify us according to your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you from the verses in front of us about one thing. There's a lot of stuff in this passage. I want to talk to you about one thing, and that is the sanctifying work of close relationships. How God uses the relationships that we have with one another in close knit family groups to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus Christ. And I want to look at it under three headings. I want to look at uh, what our calling is in that sanctifying work in relationships, what our calling is. I want to look at why our calling looks like that, and I want to look at how. Our calling is like that. What our calling is, why our calling is, and how it plays out. But first, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a car with somebody who ha- helped you drive without ever saying a single word? <laughs> Nonverbal instruction, whether they were in the back seat or they were in the Passenger seat or whatever seat that they were sitting in just seemed to help you drive or let you know what was coming along the road or in the path or in your rearview mirror before you ever saw it based on the way that they reacted to your driving, perhaps. My wife, God bless her, Brianna, is my co driver. She's my co pilot. And she th- sees things before I ever see them. And she doesn't say anything. She doesn't pipe up. She doesn't uh, tell me something's coming. She does, she does this. Perhaps you're, you're familiar with this. She'll just be sitting and maybe a big rig, an 18-wheeler, will just kind of just get over onto the yellow line and she'll immediately just do one of these. She won't say anything. She doesn't want to, like, get on my case, but she'll grab the handle up above the door. She'll put her hand on the airbag. She'll kick the floor as if the brake was there or something. And I know, without her saying a word, and perhaps your friend or your spouse does the same thing, I know that there's something I am not paying attention to. Now, generally, I don't like that when people do that. But I have learned that one or two out of ten times, there usually is something about to happen that I am unaware of, and she ends up saving my life, as wives often do. Wives save lives. (laughs) Whether it's a big rig coming into my lane or me veering into another car, uh, she, she set me right more often than once by helping me find my blind spots. This is, in a nutshell, what I think Paul is telling the church of Jesus Christ. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but you're still bringing with you a few blind spots. You've got some of those old behaviors. You've got some of those old habits. You've got even a few leftover appetites. You've got some blind spots. Even some of those things that you're not even aware of, but there are people situated in your life, whether it's siblings or parents or kids. kids people even, God even uses kids in our lives to sanctify us. Uh, people within the church, uh, relationships, neighbors, friends, to show us when an 18-wheeler is about to crash into our car, so to speak. He says in verse 11, Paul says in verse 11, uh, remember our our last text, we're not to be partakers, uh, we're not to be partners with those who are disobedient. And he says in verse 11, don't participate not only with them, but don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose those things. So there's this idea, when he says expose these fruitless works of darkness, there's this idea of confronting somebody or something with the aim of showing it to be at fault. In some determinate respect, there's something wrong with that or her or him, and it needs to be confronted in some way. Now the first thing that I did when I saw this was, I need to take this into the world and confront everybody that I meet. Because there's, you know... There's a lot of messed up people out there and, you know, I'm holy and stuff. So I need to do the world a favor and expose the darkness and show them how they're doing everything wrong. This is not what Paul is saying. He is saying that there needs to be a truthful, loving confrontation of truth whenever those blind spots exist, but he's speaking specifically about somebody else. And you, you can kind of figure that out just by reading the whole chapter. Up until this point, in chapter 5, what does he say in verse 1? Who's he talking to? Therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. He says at the end of verse 3 that this type of, these types of behaviors and vices are not proper for saints. He says in verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says in the next sentence, "So walk like you are. Walk as children of light. Your loved children, your saints of God, your holy, your children of light, that's you. By your very nature, you have been made a child, a son and a daughter of God. So that is your identity. He's now speaking about walking in accordance with that identity. So Paul isn't speaking about everyone in the whole world. He's speaking about people, the people of God, living as citizens of heaven in a world that is hostile to God. He's speaking about us. So believe it or not, this verse is referencing those within the church exposing blind spots of other people within the church, not the non-believer. So this isn't my license to leave the church building, go on the street, and start pointing my finger at everybody I meet and nitpicking their lives. And we kind of know this, right? I'd say the majority of us have a common sense. we're culturally ingrained to understand at least a little bit about the scriptures and a little bit about the love of God to know that we're not supposed to judge people. It used to be that John 3:16 was the most popular verse in the Bible, but I would say, at this point in our lives, the most popular verse in the Bible is Matthew chapter seven verse one. "Don't judge," right? You don't even have to be a Christian to know that verse. Non-believers know that. The unchurched know that verse. They tell it to us. Christians know that verse. We use it on each other. Why do we use it on each other? Because we don't want to be held accountable for our sin. At least I don't. So someone puts their nose in my business and says, hey, dude, how you doing? I, I noticed you're stumbling in this area. I just want to check up on you, love you, want to make sure you don't die, blah, blah, blah. Or hey bro, how you doing? How's your life? You walking with the Lord? Don't judge me. (laughs) Noticed you were raising your voice in a sermon the other day. Don't judge me! Just just leave me, you know, leave me with my drama. I can I can deal with it myself. I want to maintain my faith in an, an autonomous, individualistic vacuum apart from any type of accountability or poking and prodding. And so that becomes our our flag to wave, the words of Jesus himself, don't judge. The funny thing about that verse is that Jesus was speaking not about the church, but about non-believers. He's saying the church should not judge non-believers unless they know what they're getting into. I quoted this verse from Paul who says it in a, Slightly more drawn-out feature. I quoted this last week. I think it bears repeating, but Paul would say the same thing in regards to vices. He would say in First Corinthians chapter 5, where he would tell the church in Corinth, hey, sexual immorality, these types of things, uh, greed, uh, idolatry, all of these things that you left behind in the world, some of you are still practicing those things, and you need to knock it off. That's not, that, that doesn't, that's not proper for a person who identifies with Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And for those of you that remain in that habitual sin, the rest of you need to, need to know what's up and separate yourself from, from that type of a person. Now look at what he says. You have to wrap your head around this. Look at what he says in verse 10. I do not mean the immoral people of this world. I don't mean the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world, man, because everybody in the world does that. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immortal, uh, uh, immoral, immortal, (laughs) immoral. I don't even know what that would look like. (laughs) Gosh. Or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. In other words, Paul is saying the person who claims that Christ has changed their life, who's waving the banner for Jesus Christ, representing Jesus Christ to the world that needs him and yet lives in a way that does not reflect him, that is a dangerous person. And it's more than just some autonomous sin, we should just not worry about those things. This is the name and the glory and the reputation of Jesus Christ on the line. So it's no longer about you and me. It's no longer about me sinning in a vacuum and I could just deal with this on my own and I just, I'm just i comfortable with it and it's not bothering or hurting anyone else. It is hurting the glory of God in the face of other non-believers. That's a big deal. Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. Now I want to I be careful. It doesn't mean don't eat with people who sin. All of us do. This is specifically about a an unrepentant hypocrite who wants Jesus for the blessing that Jesus offers, but does not want the cross that He calls us to bear—it's a big deal. Paul goes on, man. I'm giving Paul a lot of commentary. I should simmer down. Huh? Paul goes on to say, "For for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders?" I think we should write that down. What business is it of ours to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourself. So there is a correct way to judge. We do it in love. We do it with concern for the other person. And there are correct people to judge, not outsiders. We leave them to God. We love them. We tell them the truth when there's appropriate times, when we're led by the Spirit. But we are to watch each other's blind spots. We're called to open our lives up to the scrutiny of Christian relationships, which is a very difficult thing. Uh, Maybe it is for you, maybe it's not, but I would say in our culture, I would say personally, that's a hard thing because we are very private individuals. Southern California is a very private area of the world, the West is very private. We've got our hedges that kind of cordone off our yard so that we can play privately with our family. We've got our garages. This is none of your fault. This is just our culture. We've got our garages that are so built into our houses that we can come home from work, drive into the garage, walk into our house without talking to a single person. We've got our entertainment system over there. We've got our kitchen over there. We've got compartments all over the place because we love our privacy. Nothing wrong with any of those things, by the way. But I think they help to expose this idol that we have in our culture that we love to be individualistic. Nothing wrong with individualism except for when it undermines the community that God has called us to be in. We're called to watch each other's blind spots. Now, this also doesn't mean you've got to tell a thousand people at reality all your drama. That would just make more drama, right? You don't have to post all of your problems on Facebook on Monday morning. Maybe don't do. But it means, it doesn't mean everyone in the entire church should know your drama, but it means someone should, right? There should be nothing in my life that is hidden from sight. The light that shines in my heart, the light that shines in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, those that God has specifically put in my life for that very reason, should be shining into dark patches in my life. Some of those things that I don't even know that have to be told by someone right next to me going like this. Someone who loves me and isn't afraid to tell the truth. What is our calling? It's to point out blind spots in each other's lives, but why? Is that our calling? Why is that a part of our calling? Paul goes on to say in verse 12, For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Meaning, disobedience always seems to happen in a corner. And this is something, according to Paul and the regenerated heart of a person that has been set free by God, that's one of the big differences between the world and the church. Or at least it should be is that before you were saved, you didn't have to sin in a corner. There was no shame. Perhaps you even identified with some of those things. That's who you were. Now the difference is the Holy Spirit has implanted Himself in your soul. He manifests the glory of God in you and you now have God dwelling in your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that when the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit grieves because of sin, you now grieve because your emotion and God's emotion have become one. You are now grieved when things that grieve god's heart have now touched yours and so that is a powerful sanctifying work of the holy spirit in the life of the church is that we are convicted over our sin now and it's no longer this weird type of legalism where we read the scriptures we don't know jesus but we say oh i should do this don't do that thou shalt not do this thou shalt not do that we try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be holy people even though we can't and secretly we don't want to Christianity, salvation is more than just Jesus saying, be a better person. It is Jesus changing your desires so that when you now want to seek to obey the Word of God, it is for the joy set before you. I want to be like Jesus because that is the best way to live and I want to bring glory and honor to my Savior. And Paul says the things that you used to do You tend to do, as a Christian, because there is that holy, uh, I want to choose my words carefully, that holy conviction, that holy sorrow, that holy grief, where you, you never knew that before. Now you have it. So when you sin, you now have to do it in the dark. Sin will fester when you leave it in the dark. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, you used to deny your sin. You used to be dead to your sin. You used to dampen the sin, maybe depress it, maybe be desensitized to it. But now there is the supernatural light shining into your heart, revealing that those things are against your Father. And he goes on to say in verse 13, Everything exposed by the light is made clear. Why do we show each other blind spots? Why does God convict us of sin? So that we can get those things that are holding us back and expose them by the light of Jesus Christ. Everything exposed by the light is clear. I think our artist nailed it pretty well with the lamp in the middle of a, a bunch of caves, spreading light into dark nooks and crannies. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That is how a sinner is saved. The light goes on. And the light keeps going on and it spreads and it catches other people. We're called to watch each other's blind spots and to watch our own blind spots because, simple truth is, you've been set apart by God for God. You don't belong to the darkness anymore. You don't belong to the darkness anymore. You have been set apart now you might ask well if we have been set apart if all of this is true that we are perfect in God's sight that we are justified that we are being sanctified that we uh, are no longer dead to sin but that we're alive to Christ and all of these verses that I see and God's kingdom has been inaugurated and all of this victory why should we even be looking for this kind of stuff could you turn a couple chapters back to Ephesians chapter 2 This is the answer. Because though you are being sanctified, there is a battle being waged for your soul. Ephesians chapter 2, we weren't there uh, together for a long time. I think it was like a year and a half or two years. But this was that side of the hinge that described our lives before we came to Christ. Look at the language he said. We'll just read uh, the first three verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, uh, virtual underline ways of this world, or using whatever. According to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, underline ruler, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Underlying fleshly desires. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. You see the difference. Before the light of the Holy Spirit shined into your heart and into mine. We were by nature. By identity. Children of wrath. And children of disobedience. Marked by three things. Now the change When Jesus gets a hold of you and changes your heart of stone to a heart of flesh, when he gives you new desires, when he shows you the right way to walk, and it's actually a joy for you, all of that stuff changes. But one thing does not change. That trifecta is still after you. You will not lose your salvation if you are saved. You are saved for the long haul. You will not lose your salvation. But Everything in this world that is against your soul and against you knowing God will come after you in full force. And there seems to be at least three things. One, the spirit of the age. Paul calls it the ways of this world. In other words, it's the culture. It's the spirit of the age. We live in a fallen culture. And that could look a number of ways. It could, it, it could mean that you have good intentions. You, you're an entrepreneur. You want to start a business to help people. You start to do it for five years. And you start to notice that it is the hardest thing that you have ever done. Not because your intentions weren't good. Not because you don't love God. But because the current of the world is pushing against you with all of its force. And you discover that it's not easy to follow Jesus in a world that hates him. The second thing is what Paul calls the ruler who exercises exercises authority over the lower heavens. In other words, Satan and his demons. Listen, if you're a Christian, you absolutely have to understand that Satan exists. Please do not leave this church thinking that he is a myth. That is the worst thing that you will ever do for your life. The Bible simultaneously describes principalities and powers, demonic forces, or fallen angels, supernormal fallen angels invisible to our eye that rule over the world with a certain amount of power and demonic force. And yet the Bible also simultaneously describes the Christian as having more authority over them. I believe it's uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 that says, He who dwells in you, uh, greater is he that dwells in you than he who is in the world. So for the Christian, we must recognize and hold in tension two things. One, we should not deny, we should not treat as trifling, we should not treat as silly, we should not take lightly the fact that Satan and demons and spiritual warfare exists all around us. Don't us dare go into Santa Barbara and Carpinteria and Ventura and think that there is no Satan. But we should also hold that intention with the fact that Jesus Christ has made a show openly of demons and Satan when he triumphed over them on the cross and he dwells within our mortal bodies. And so you have nothing to be afraid of, but your eyes should be open to those things. The culture is against us. Satan is against us. And then Paul throws in our fleshly desires or our sin nature, the lust of the flesh. This is a good thing to keep in mind so that we don't think that under every rock is a demon, right? I have a headache today, Satan. <laughs> I was speeding the other day. The devil made me push the pedal down too hard. Cheated on my taxes. The devil made me do it. I lost my temper. The devil made me do it. I slept in through church on Sunday. The devil made me do it. The list goes on. The devil, the devil, the devil. Listen, let's not give the guy too much credit. He does a lot of stuff, but some of the stuff is our fault. It's due, in fact, to the uh, due in part to the fact that we have a sinful nature that Paul describes in Romans seven as warring against our new nature. There is a battle going on inside you for your soul. There is the old nature that wants to go back to what you used to know. And there is a new nature that wants to go forward saying, Whom have I in heaven but you, Jesus Christ? There is nothing on earth that I desire but you. And we are called to feed that new nature. To make that new nature stronger by feeding on Jesus Christ. So we are called to check each other's blind spots, not as some sort of strange hobby, but because there is a real battle involving a fallen world, a fallen angel, and a fallen nature that is all like an evil trifecta after your soul. And yet God says, you have the victory in Jesus Christ, but you need to be aware that there is a battle. There are blind spots, and there is a current all around you that is attempting to push you back to where you came from. Don't get ripped off in this life. How is our calling possible? We're called to watch out for those dark spots, to watch out for those blind spots, to expose them with the light of Jesus Christ. But how are we to do that? Can you turn, keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 5, turn to Exodus chapter 13, I want to read you a short story which I think will express what Paul is getting at vividly. Ephesians chapter 13, verse 17 through 21. This is immediately after one of the greatest salvific events in the Old Testament. What any Orthodox Jew on the face of the planet, would recognize as their day of salvation. When God rescued the people of God from the hand of Egypt and led them out of Egypt into the promised land. But I want, I want you to key in on a few, passage, uh, a few verses. I'm going to start in verse 17 and skip around until we get to verse 22. Listen to this. This is right as Pharaoh lets them go. They're still in Egypt. And this is what the word of the Lord says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, The people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. The people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around towards the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle for uh, formation. Verse 20, listen to this. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. I want you to hone in on two things. One, God... Delivers the people of God in one of the most extravagant illustrations of salvation in the history of the people of God. Rescues them from 400 years of slavery. And at that point, they're free. They don't have to guess if they're free. They don't have to wonder if they're half free and they need to pull themselves up a little bit and be more free. They don't have to wonder about it. They have been declared and made free by the sovereign hand of God. But notice they're still in Egypt. And notice what God says immediately after that act of salvation. He says, I'm not going to lead them this way because I can foresee the events that are going to happen in the next few days. The people are going to get discouraged by what? By a battle. There's going to be a war for them. They are going to face war and they're not going to be able to take it. In fact, they're going to change their minds about where I was going to lead them. And they're going to want to go back. Back to what? And if you read the rest of Exodus, you see Israel just fall into the state of delusion. Read the rest of the book and they say things like when they they face the Red Sea and they don't see any part and they see the chariots coming behind them, they're facing war. And what do they say? They say things like, oh, Moses, this is so messed up. Why did you do this? Did they not forget chapters earlier begging Moses to intercede for their salvation? Begging for God to show his hand mighty on their behalf and God shows his hand mighty on their behalf and there is a little bit of trouble and what do they say? Moses! It was so much better when we were slaves. Israel, do you remember... Your slavery. Do you remember when the Egyptian taskmasters beat you into submission, robbed you of your ability to worship your God, stripped you from your family? It's better to go back? That's what sin does to you. It desensitizes your spiritual eyes to the heart of God, to believe that what God has for you is actually better. And the more you feed off of your sin, the more you sit in that blind spot, the more you harbor darkness, the more you actually believe that you know what's better for your life than God. And you will start to say with the nation of Israel, wasn't it better when we were slaves? So he led the people around towards the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And look, look at... Look at what God's solution is to our wandering hearts. Verse 21. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel whether day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. God redeems his people from Egypt, but he still needed to bring them out of the culture and the habits and the lifestyle that they were so conformed to. He doesn't just save them positionally, he makes them saved. He doesn't just give them the title deed to what is rightfully there, he brings them into a new abode. He doesn't just say, hey, by the way, your shackles are gone. He rips off the chains. He pulls them out of their prison and he leads them into the promised land by fire. And thousands of years later this element of the story has not changed. Sometimes when the Christian life gets too tough for us, sometimes when we experience a little persecution, sometimes when life is inconvenient, sometimes when we get fired from our job, sometimes when someone hurts us, offends us, betrays us within the church and we feel like saying, "Don't judge me." Sometimes when our life doesn't look the way that we thought it would when we signed up for our best life now our immediate inclination is that Egypt looks more appealing. And what are we to do? We need a pillar of fire before the people of God to remind us what we were saved from and what we are being saved for. I want to take you Through Hebrews, through a couple chapters of Hebrews. We'll have it on screen. You can turn there if you have a Bible. Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to flip really quickly because the author of Hebrews explains Christian sanctification in light of the Israelite exodus. This is beautiful. Give you a few seconds to turn there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. 13, we'll just hop around through chapter 3 and chapter 4. Someone say, I got there when you get there. there yeah. Oh, okay. I never know how long to wait. That's helpful. Hebrews chapter 3. Watch out, Brothers so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily. Watch each other's blind spots. While it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So that none of you is desensitized. So that none of you denies. So that none of you is in the dark. So that none of you are fooled by the blind spots that you can't see. Encourage each other daily so that that doesn't happen okay go a few verses ahead to verse 15 through 17 as it is said today listen to this today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who heard and rebelled now he's getting nostalgic he's referring back to an event that happened he's referring to the exodus and he goes on to say wasn't it really all who came out of egypt under moses And who was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This is what what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's making a parallel between the Exodus and our life now. He's saying, sometimes we do what the nation of Israel used to do. We are in that period of going through the wilderness. God wants to get us out of the wilderness and into the promised land. But we're just walking in circles because we think that that's the best thing that we've got going. We're walking around our pile of sin like we've got it all figured out. And God wants to move us. But we're there 40 years. He's saying, could you please not be like them? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Here's the difference. Since they were not united with it, uh, with those who heard it in faith. Verse 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given the Israelites rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. In other words, there exists right now not just a, an hour of rest on Saturday. There exists a supernatural rest that envelops the people of God, that makes you well, the shalom of God, that exists somehow for the people of God right now. He goes on to say, "For the people who has entered His rest has rested. Uh, the person who has entered His rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from His." Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. In other words, nothing has changed since the Exodus. We are still fooled by the dark corners and the blind spots of our sin unless we have a pillar of light to lead us in the right direction. And sometimes we need other people to get in our grill and get in our case for our own good and for God's own glory. And there exists a better rest than the Sabbath that Israel knew. There exists a better pillar of fire than Israel knew. There exists a better everything than Israel knew. I'll just read from you. This isn't on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. What is that Sabbath rest? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus The Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, oh, build your house on this line. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. You want to know what the true Sabbath is? It's Jesus Christ, your Lord. You want want to know who, who the true Exodus is? It's Jesus Christ, your Lord. You want to know what the true Passover meal is according to Jesus Christ? It's Him. He is the bread that was broken. Everything in the Old Testament finds its true meaning as it points to Christ, meaning there is, there is a pillar of fire that still leads the people of God out of Egypt. There was a story we know that called the Emmaus road in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is like incognito, right? He just rose from the dead and he's walking with his disciples and he's talking to him and he's saying, Hey, what are you guys doing? What you been up to? Any anything going on in Jerusalem that I should know about? Ah Our rabbi died, our teacher, we don't know what to do, we're gonna hide under a rock. Ah and Jesus throws down a hammer. And he's all you guys are so silly. Have you not been paying attention to all that I have spoken to you? And listen to what he says. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He gives them a Bible study starting from Genesis to Malachi, showing them how all of that wraps in to who he is. How would you like to be a part of that Bible study? Maybe when you get to heaven, you ask the Lord, Hey, got that in the archives? Paul gives us a glimpse of what that might have sounded like when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 6, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under a pillar of cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food, the same manna, they all drank the same spiritual drink, they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ." Everything that happened in Exodus points to its fulfillment in Jesus. And he goes on to say, But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. What we see in the Exodus and in the entire Old Testament points to a greater redemption in Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul can't handle himself, he just breaks into song. Listen to what he says. Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Scholars are torn about what he means, but their best guess is that he is pulling fragments from the book of Isaiah, all having to do with repentance. And he's putting them together in a sort of a medley, and he's singing it at the, th- at the top of his lungs. In other words, he's saying that the very light that has shined on you to bring you up from the dead is the same light that will wake you up when you fall asleep. And here is the conviction for the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age, is that sometimes we fall asleep when we shouldn't. When things are too prosperous, when things are too comfortable, when things are normative, when we fall into a rut or into a status quo, we tend to fall asleep and the light of Jesus Christ wants to wake us up. My my daughter turned eight months a couple days ago. And I've noticed that in the past couple days, I'll let her sleep like right next to me. And when I wake up, oh, actually when when she falls asleep, sometimes I'll I'll come home late and I'll roll in and I'll see her just sprawled out. And somehow she, she goes from this position, just like laid all cute, to just sprawled out, Hands just strewn about the bed, just taking every inch of the mattress. And I'll roll into that. And I'll try to, like, push her over and move her. And she's just a dead weight. Once she falls asleep, she just is unmovable. And I've actually tested that. Like, one in the morning, I'll just, I'll I'll wake up or whatever and I'll see her. And she'll just be laying like this, just all cute. And I'll just, like, poke her cheek, pinch her cheek, kiss her on the forehead, talk to her. Like, hey. And she'll she'll just sit there. Nothing can shake her. I'll roll her over. I'll move her to the side. She'll just just flop around like a fish. Until about 6 a.m. when Brianna flips on the light. And immediately. And her hair is disheveled. She doesn't know where she is. She does one of these at first. And she, she's just blinking, and she can't even see straight, and so I'll pick her up, and it's like she's looking right through me. She, she doesn't know what's going on. She'll just do one of these. But after a while, as the light remains on, she, she starts to pick up things. She'll see Brianna, she'll see her mama, and she'll just be like... <laughs> and then she'll see me, and she'll start clawing at my face. And within a few minutes, she'll just be fuck wild. She'll just be flailing her arms and screaming at the top of her lungs and all limbs just flapping like a mermaid. Just, ah! She can't walk or stand up, so she just flaps her limbs. And all of a sudden, as soon as the light turns on, within 10 minutes, our house is a bucket of joy screaming at the top of her lungs. Why? Why does someone go like that from a a moment where she can't even be moved, even if you roll her like a a fish, (laughs) to a moment where she is just screaming at the top of her lungs full of joy? I'll tell you why, because mama turned the light on. It's possible for Christians to fall asleep. To fall into a state of spiritual uh, lethargy to holiness. To fall into a place of indifference. And God uses others to flip on the switch. He uses the light of Jesus Christ to shine into our hearts. To reveal perhaps that we are falling asleep. i had a lot more to share but I'm just going to stop right there. Because some of us are sleeping. God wants you to wake up. Not to get on your case because God's not an angry taskmaster. He's not a he's not an Egyptian foreman. He's not an angry uncle. He's a loving heavenly father who loved you so much that he sent his son to a slaughter. And throughout history, the church seems to be the most affected when they're operating from the margins of society not loud and boisterous not waving flags not using their bullhorns from the margins being who God called them to be living out their identity as children of God loving God and loving others God's calling on our life this morning is not that our faith needs to be more powerful. It's not that we need an extra reservoir of, of faith, that we need a stronger faith, that we need more faith. Our calling this morning is that we need to recognize the object of our faith, the object, the author, and the finisher of our faith, that is Jesus Christ, who calls us to a gospel that is free and simultaneously costly, because it's free in the sense that you get it without doing anything to merit it. And it's costly because in doing so, God calls you to give him everything that you've got. This requires relationship. It requires humility and it requires vulnerability. And those are some of the hardest things that we've ever been asked to give. And if that's you, if you feel in any way that you are falling asleep, as God's kingdom is expanding over the coastline. You don't want to sleep anymore. You want to be caught up in the current of what God is doing. All you've got to do is repent of that with joy and ask that the Holy Spirit would save you from yourself. Let's do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we stand before you as a church that is recognizing that we don't have it all together. In fact, we might even go so far as to say that we have very little together. And even though that is the case, we glory in a God who saves people who have nothing together. That you choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That you choose a foolish message to save foolish people. And that even with foolish people, broken people, rebels, sinners alike, your word says of Jesus that you will not break a bruised reed. You will not put out a smoldering wick until you have led justice to victory. And we're praying that in this church today, across these three campuses, you would lead us to victory in Jesus Christ. That you would sanctify us and that you would make us more like our Lord and Savior that we would be able to say to one another, Jesus Christ is alive. I know because I see it in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.